Are you in a rut? Stressed by the demands of your personal, professional, and social lives? Join lifestyle guru Pauline Brown right now for Tastemakers. That's really where people can really make the celebrated individual the centerpiece. She invites her friends to share tips of the trade and new ideas for bringing out the best in you. My real passion is style, and not just style, but design, beauty, all things aesthetic. Turn the mundane into the memorable with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers. Hello and welcome back to Tastemakers. I'm your host, Pauline Brown. Today, I welcome a very special guest, someone I admire enormously, someone I've been watching from afar and occasionally nearby for many years. Uh, she comes from the world of art and design. She's a celebrated curator, an author, a teacher, an architect by training. She is a true aesthet, and I don't use that word lightly. Um, her name is Paola Antonelli. She has a lot of talents, only some of which I just mentioned, but one of them that I want to really come back to a lot in this interview is her keen ability to see art and beauty in everyday objects. In fact, it was Paula who turned me on to a YouTube video about how jelly beans are made. And I'm telling you, every time I get stressed, I go to this YouTube clip. It's fascinating. Who knew? Um, also, <laughs> Paula had me thinking completely differently about how pasta is shaped and why only Italian grandmas seem capable of coming up with these new shapes. That's a whole other thread. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me just welcome her first time on the show. Paola, welcome to SiriusXM. Ciao, Pauline, and right back at you with all those great compliments. You know, I really, it's mutual. <laughs> well, I won't accept that, but uh, I appreciate that. Um, and let me just tell you a little bit more about Paula, if you aren't already blown away by these um, these descriptives. So she, by, by day, she's a senior curator at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. Uh, she's been there for many years. She also is the founding director of research and development at MoMA, which I think is a, is a fascinating concept. Like, what does it mean to actually do R&D at a museum? So we're going to talk about that in a minute. She's won many uh, national design awards, including one from the Smithsonian. And in fact, Time Magazine named her one of 25 design visionaries. So don't need me to tell you how impressive she is. Let's start, Paula, with pasta. So I, I so enjoyed your TED talk on how pasta is shaped and why renowned designers can't seem to get it right, but Italian grandmas have for generations. I enjoyed it so much that I signed it to my graduate students at Columbia University. So talk to us, because most people who are listening in will not have any idea what I'm talking about. Uh, talk to us about, about this topic and, and how you, you landed on it uh, as a senior curator at the MoMA. You know, for many, many years, my mission has been to make people understand that design is much more than cute chairs or like great posters or pretty products and sleek products, that it's really surrounding all of us everywhere at any moment of our lives. So I, I, I kept on looking for ex examples of design that were different, examples that you could touch, that you could smell. And then one day I thought, oh my God, if you could even eat great examples of design, then maybe people could really understand and metabolize it. So I started thinking of, of food as a form of design, but not, not plates, just the units of food. And there's no greater example of design of, of like edible design than pasta. Because pasta shapes are meant to be 
taste it, meant to pick up the sauce, different types of sauce in a different way. They're meant for either butter or oil or tomatoes or chunks and meat. So they really changed together with the whole idea of what the pasta will be. And, uh, and, and I started researching it and I started writing about it. The first time I wrote about it must have been 27, 28 years ago, like really, really a long time for ID Magazine, it was at that time, an article. And so I, I kept on also researching and I found out that pasta, well, of course, there's the uh, there's the, the millennial, millennial uh, fight between the Chinese and the Italians on who invented noodles and <laughs> nobody will ever solve it. That goes into obscurity and into mystery forever. But then there's the funny fact that Giorgetto Giugiaro, great car designer, tried to make a type of pasta, failed miserably. Why? Because those are the kind of, uh, of designs that have to be perfected over centuries, right? That's why I say grandmothers or, or like cooks or I mean, anybody who, who knows how to eat and to make pasta for whole families knows also how to design it, right? Mm. It's it's. It's objects that come from material culture that are what we call at MoMA humble masterpieces. So I want to talk uh, about you as an Italian. In fact, you're in Italy right now, even though home for you is New York. Um, I always say that the two countries that breed the best aesthetes, the most aesthetic people are Italy and Japan. And some of it is the attention to detail, the, the deep history in design, in really great and original design. But some of it is this multi-sensorial, which you're getting at with the pasta. The idea that I think Americans take in beauty largely with their eyes and with their ears. We're a music culture. But I don't th think we express it nearly as profoundly through culinary or through tactility as, as many of the Europeans. And I'm just wondering, coming to New York, what are some of your observations as an Italian who lives between these two worlds and is back in Italy right now? Am I wrong? I remember. No, no, you're not wrong at all. It's funny because I remember the first time I came to New York City was, well, first time was probably 87, 88. But the first time I came for work was 1989. And I remember how stunned I was because there are different strengths in different places. So, yes, you're right. Milan especially, the strength is designed. So you go to the hair salon and you have, you know, people in Us Magazine, but then you have Domus and Abitare and people talk about football and they also talk about the latest release by Cartel, the new table. So it really is part of everybody's culture. So that's the strength of Milan. Then you come to New York and the strength is contemporary art. And I remember I was staying with a friend in, to in uh, Soho, and she had a three and a half year old kid, and the kid would get mailings from the children's gallery, and he would want to take me to see some Julian Schnabel totems, like some some like scary dark sculptures that he liked so much. So that was normalcy in New York. So mm. that's what I realized, and I didn't know anything about contemporary art because in Italy they would teach you art history until Dada, and then. No, doesn't exist nothing else. <laughs> yeah so so it was very stunning for me and then i started observing in different parts of the world you go to some parts of latin america um and the strength is modernist architecture like you ask any kind of engineer or architect to make your house and it comes it's a it's a modernist jewel so it, it's funny there are different strengths everywhere 
and in Italy, there's a lot of tackiness. I mean, thank you for, for giving us such high marks, but there's a lot of tackiness. Nonetheless, I agree with you that even in the tackiest situations, people are able to appreciate a few things with joy and those things will be sublime. Maybe it's a wine, maybe it's a dish, maybe mm. it's uh, you know, a piece of lace. It doesn't matter. There's always something sublime and people appreciate it. Mm. Well, certainly you appreciate in the everyday things, the sublime. We've talked about jellyfish, we've talked or, or, uh, about jelly Whoa, beans. Jellyfish too. Uh, jellyfish jellyfish are actually quite beautiful. <laughs> uh, yes. we, we've talked about pasta. Um, I, I want to actually talk about you a minute, <laughs> another exquisite thing to observe. So um, so you started as an architect and you end up as a curator in a museum. Um, and, and just for, for people who are kind of bewildered about even the whole you know, organization behind these big noted museums, how did you end up there? Did you ever actually think you'd be making buildings as opposed to making exhibits? Making buildings? No. I, I worked for six months as an architect and realized early on that I, it really was not for me. I was not cut for it. I just could never make it. It's, it's a tough, tough, tough profession. So I just skedaddled immediately. And uh, the good thing in Italy is that um, instead of having schools for curators, schools for journalists, schools for practitioners, you, t you learn something and then you find different platforms. So I had learned architecture and I started working when I found out I couldn't be an architect. I started working as a journalist of architecture and design, as a freelance curator, but I had never thought of becoming a curator. I had never thought of working at MoMA or in any museums. It all happened, it all happened. I always think, I always say that I was almost surfing, you know, really paddling and, and, you know, it was tiring to paddle. It took a lot of energy, but then catching the wave, right? So I got my job at MoMA by um, answering an ad in a magazine. Hmm, so, wow. yeah, I already knew the people at MoMA. I had interviewed them. I had written about their exhibitions, but they never thought of me as curator, as a curator. Mm. And, and I applied almost because it was there. I mean, I, I, mm. I climbed Everest because it was there, right? And then, <laughs> and then when I got called and said that I had the job, I was stunned. I was like, oh my God, now what? Now I have to go move to New York and take the job. So it was really putting myself in a situation where there was no return. And I'm sure there's no real training. It's like an apprentice business. You just do it to become a curator. Um, it's not like you could really go to school to learn how to curate. You learn how to curate in life, right? Well, there are curatorial courses and they're really good. Like at Bard, just north of New York, there's a, an excellent one. And right now there's more and more, um, but they're mostly for people that curate art. Mm -hmm. I There's no that I know there's no curatorial courses for, oh, maybe for design, one at Kingston University in London, but very few. I personally believe that it's uh, better if you study something and then apprentice the platform. Got it. Okay, I have time for one more question before we break. Um, and this one is one that plagues me. What is the difference between art and design? How do you define each of them? 
Well, definitions really escape us all. It's impossible to define art. It's impossible to design, define design well. But I can tell you the difference between an artist and a designer. And even in that case, it's not based on mediums. It's not based on the product. But rather, it's that an artist can choose whether to be responsible towards other human beings or not. And instead, a designer has to be by definition. Right. So to me, that's the only difference. It's a philosophical difference and it all has to do with intentions. Uh, but you cannot tell an artist from a designer. Designers use videos. Artists make chairs. You know, it's really, you know, somebody like Andrea Zittel, she, she's a, an artist that uses the, the methodologies and the process of design. And then you have instead uh, designers that make videos and do sculptures. So you can't really tell them that way. Mm. It's how they declare themselves to be. Well, I like that. Um, and therefore, I'm going to declare myself to be an admirer of both art and design. Um, I do want to come back after the break and actually also have you define for us something that you may hold, you may resist, which is what is modern art as opposed to traditional. Um, and, and I have so many questions for you. I want to talk about what it's like a day in the life of a curator. I want to talk about trends. And I want to talk about what art and the art world is going to look like in the post-pandemic time. So, uh, so stay with us. I'm with uh, the amazing curator from the MoMA, Paola Antonelli. You're listening to SiriusXM Tastemakers. Stay with us. We now return to Tastemakers with Pauline Brown on Sirius XM Stars. Hello and welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. I'm here this hour with Paola Antonelli. She's a senior curator at the MoMA. Uh, we are talking about modern design. We're talking about design as it appears in the museum, but we're also talking about design in life and more broadly. But let, let's, let's stay with this modern design because the MoMA is dedicated to modern art and design. What is modern design? Is, is there a, a time where we have kind of like a BC and an AD? Is there a before and an after? That's such a big question. That's the one that at MoMA we've been grappling with forever, and especially now. Um, MoMA was founded in 1929. At that time, the, the most forward-looking way to think of the world was the Bauhaus. You know, the German school that um, that tried to bring all the arts together to make the world a better place for humans, and there was um, a lot of um, a lot of certitude, right? A lot of like clear ideas about progress that were very much based on uh, a Eurocentric kind of view of the world. There was interest, curiosity for other expressions of life or of material culture, of art, but it was really very much this Eurocentric view. And lately, throughout the departments of MoMA, we've been thinking of what other moderns were. But to give you a definition of modern, which is very hard, I can tell you something, an apocryphal definition. It was passed on to me by Kirk Barnado, who used to be the chief curator of painting and sculpture at MoMA. Problem is that, unfortunately, Kirk passed away. This is somebody else's quote that he passed on to me, and I couldn't find it anymore, but it's beautiful. Modern is everything that does not hide the process of its making. Mm. It's so beautiful. So it's about, in a way, you see the initial idea and it shines through until the very final product. And it's true. That's when design is particularly beautiful, when you can tell what the initial purpose was, right? So this is the definition that works for me because it also takes into account process. But lately, 
we've been trying to really look at the world differently. There's been many different kinds of modernisms and moderns, right? There's not only the Eurocentric one, it has happened in Southeast Asia, it has happened in Latin America, it has happened in Africa, in different parts of Africa, and we're trying to really understand. And then of course, I'm sure you're familiar also with the idea of postmodern. In a way, the shining bright light of modern started fading in the 1960s or even before, especially in architecture, when the projects, the, the big houses, the big, you know, like neighborhoods that were supposed to finally reach equality turned out to be instead places where crime and inequality festered. So that crisis was then I'm trying to make like a short story of modernism, which is so difficult, but uh, that then generated responses that go from brutalism to the kind of postmodern that you've seen mm -hmm. in Memphis and in, uh, in so many of the architectures of the 1980s mm. and now are into this pluralism that is making the world a much more interesting place. But so... I have given you an answer that is so superficial, I cringe. Well, you but... say that, but it's probably as profound <laughs> as uh, no. I've ever heard on a, on a few minute lecture on modern art and modern design. It really is. Um, there's but a modern lot is great because it was a holy grail um, and it was almost like an asymptote. We almost got there and then it revealed cracks. And so mm. we moved on. So it's evolution. What do you make, I want to have you put your architecture hat back on, what do you make of the resurgence of mid-century modern architecture and furniture and other retro-like designs? What, 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 what brought us to that? I mean, you know, growing up in the 80s, that would have been seen as very ultra, right? Very uh, uncool. And now it is just, and it has been for the last 10 years or so, very, very in. Well, nostalgia is a very mysterious compulsion, and uh, it, there are different moments in time that call upon the callers at different times. And you know, nineteen fifties for some were an amazingly reassuring and beautiful place. You know, the, the the birth of the middle class, the GIs coming back from the war, getting a little money from the government to start new families, a new architecture, a new form of design that were really buttressed by the technological innovations during the war. So it was a moment of rebirth. Of course, it was also a moment in which inequalities were rife and uh, and in which so many of the problems that existed before the war remained or if anything got buried for a while until they exploded in the 1960s no matter what it's a it's a moment of hope you know mm. and i can see how people would go back to that also there's something to said to be said about mid century modern it's gorgeous it's gorgeous and it's familiar. It's the American style. So I'm not surprised mm, that mm. Americans love it. Mm. Um, it's, it certainly is, um, it's clean. The spirit of mid-century modern does feel very American to me. So there's, a, there's that work ethic. It's a bit egalitarian, which I can't say America's been, but, but it's what drove that movement initially. I want to actually talk about another nostalgic movement that was... Um, had, was was covered and, and with quite a bit of controversy at, at the MoMA some years ago. It was all about video games. And um, I, I saw there was a headline back at the, the day, and I mean, they were featuring Pac-Man and Tetris and Minecraft. 
And, and the headline in The Guardian said, sorry, mama, video games are not art. Were you involved with that one, by the way? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. It was my acquisition. And that headline was by Jonathan Jones. And it's very, very funny because um, I'm so proud of uh, the video games in the MoMA collection. And, you know, I mean, I don't know about you. I'm not thick skinned at all. I am very, very sensitive. And when I get criticism, I just like. I just curl up under the bed for a few days. But instead, when I saw that review, I remember that instead of cringing for myself, I cringed for the critic because I mm. thought he was so out of touch. Yes. Because you know what? Maybe at his time, Picasso was considered like Pac-Man and <laughs> snickered. So it's so, it's so, um, it's so not reading the room, right? Right. So of course, of course, you can have opinions and but thinking that Pac-Man should not be next to Picasso is crazy because there's four floors in between. Mm. And it's our job to move forward, you know, mm -hmm. as museum curators. And if we are to uh, to consider and collect the art of our time, which is part mm. of MoMA's mandate, what's more of our time than video games? You know, right now they are becoming the platform that will host life, work, mm. play, relationships in the future. It's a gigantic business, but not only that, it's also a gigantic part of life. So, hey, it's our job to. So, I, I grew up. It playing Pac-Man and uh, I, I and I I love the shape of it. It was something a little horrific about being chased by some gobbling, whatever that that ghost was. I guess it was a ghost. Do you think, though, uh, in let's call it 30 years from now, will that next generation looking back, say at the year 2021, look at social media with that same sense of design you know, um, 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 a milestone or, or marker of a time? Do you think it'll be apps? Any, any thoughts on what might stick going forward? You know, it's not whole categories that stick as memorable, but rather individual video games. So there are so many video games, but you don't remember them all. You know that video games are important as a dimension in our lives. So I'm sure that social media will be remembered as an important dimension of our life. The same with apps, but then it's the individual apps or the individual video games or social media that might be memorable. Amongst the social media from a design standpoint, they are definitely notable in the way they operate, mm -hmm. but they don't care that much about design. They're more mm -hmm. there to, mm -hmm. to accommodate our design, right? Mm -hmm. And the same with apps. Video games are much more designed and especially mm -hmm. it's the behaviors that are designed. So they're more of my realm. I'm mm -hmm. very, very mm -hmm. much interested in, in all sorts of apps and all sorts of digital spaces. But I have to say that video games are ripe for the taking. Yes. Especially in the days of the, um, I'm also thinking of the arcades, where it wasn't just the game, but it was the space that you walked into that seemed so space age. And now you sort of look at a, you know, at a, at, a, at one of these tables and, and, and these, you know, rooms with lots of lights and lots of fluorescent colors, and it just feels really dated, but it was so state of the art. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring that up because on purpose at MoMA, we decided not to uh, show the cabinets and the arcade part, the arcade nostalgia. We want to really focus on the mm. interaction and the behavior. We are acquiring also the hardware, but we're putting it in storage. We try mm. to show only 
it's only the controller and the screen mm -hmm. and the mm. screen the same size that it used to be. But, you know, video games can be looked at from so many different viewpoints. They're really, really mm. important in our mm. lives. And I bet that that particular exhibit resonated with men as much as women, you know, whereas uh, some of the others, uh, one I want to actually talk to you about, it was one that I absolutely loved, got also a lot of attention, one that you curated a few years ago called Items is Fashion Modern. Um, so, so talk to me about the genesis of that. You, you decided, and it was a big decision for the MoMA, to do an entire exhibit on elements that represented modern fashion. How it was not my decision. It was not my idea. It was not my decision. Let's give credit where credit is due. It was the MoMA directors. It was Glenn Lowry's. Mm -hmm. He came to me and said, uh, fashion show, Paula. And I'm like, whoa, fashion. I'm not a fashion expert, but I'm a design expert. So I, of course, the boss tells you to do something and you, you think about it. So I said, okay. I thought and I decided I can do a design show with fashion as the subject, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. instead of doing um, a fashion show about either one designer or a particular moment in the history of fashion, I decided to look at items of fashion as if they were design objects, therefore taking into account the context, the materials, the way they were designed, what they meant in material culture. So approaching fashion from a different viewpoint and together with a wonderful curatorial team, um, we came up with 111 items that had an important function or role to play in a New York centric world in the past 115 years. You'll ask me why New York centric? Well, because you have to kind of delineate the field. If you mm. try to be everything for everyone, you're not going to get a good show. Um, why 111? Because we like numbers that can be divided by three. <laughs> and we started with 99 and then we needed more. But so amongst those where um, think of New York, think of Queens, think of uh, all the different aspects from the sari to the Adidas superstar to the baseball hat to the uh, even Luz Moking or Rudy Genreich, I mean, we, we, and the little black dress. So New York is such a section of humanity and of the world that just looking at the world here gave us a pretty amazing list. Mm. So it was almost like an encyclopedia. It must have been hard, though. I'm sure for every one idea you included or one item you included, there were dozens that you didn't. And that is a really hard call. And I'm sure that companies and individuals were lobbying hard to be in that exhibit. No, well, yes and no. It's funny. Um, I can tell you what was uh, number 112 was the tube socks. <laughs> oh, which you it know was what? so yeah, funny. That's a, that's a controversial exclusion. Listen, we could sit down and uh, with like a, two glasses of wine and two hours, we could come up with 500 objects. Mm -hmm. So, but always when you curate a show, it is um, at, at first you have this kind of clay mass and then you start sculpting it and modeling mm -hmm. it and it mm -hmm. becomes also the narration kind of besides what works and what doesn't. So no tube socks, but we had Spanx. Mm -hmm. you know, so it, it was really fascinating because there was a section about the silhouette so you had the little black dress and spanks were there too uh -huh. so you start you start crafting the narration and right. the selection and then a few fights within the curatorial team of course there were i'm sure hoop socks oh my god yes <laughs> oh i love it were they orange uh, the ones you would have included would they have orange stripes on them 
you know, I didn't even take them into account. I was the boss. I just, I know my decision. (laughs) So, you know, I'm thinking about the process that you go through. So I'm teaching my students. I I have, as you know, because you've been a guest lecturer, uh, a business school students um, in a class on aesthetics. And one of the exercises is for them to all do a mood board. And it's a mood board that provides a vision for a company based on what is today and what they envision it evolving into. And what I always tell them is, yes, the elements themselves, what you include on it and using your real estate, which is your board very wisely is important, but it's also the juxtaposition it makes a big difference, you know, because that's how you tell a story. How do you think about the narrative of, of, of an exhibition? Do you think of it in terms of the sequencing, in terms of the, the chronological sequencing, uh, the visual impact? What, what are the steps you go through? It's hardly ever chronological in my exhibitions also because I tend to do contemporary design shows. But just to give you another example of exhibition, there's this exhibition called Broken Nature that was at the Triennale di Milano first, and now it's in a much smaller version in, in New York at MoMA. And it was it was called Broken Nature. It was about the idea of restorative design. So the fact that there's an environmental crisis and as citizens, there are a few strategies that we can apply in life. Um, and the strategies are our grandmother's strategies from Mm. using waste as a new material to holding on to objects for a very long time to recycling, you name it. But it was important give these kind of uh, very wise suggestions in a way that would make them not about self-flagellation or punishment, but rather as a wonderful journey. So in that case, it was important to um, expand time and then instead become very detailed. It's about really bringing people along. I remember one of the most beautiful lectures I ever attended was by Laurie Anderson, you know, Mm. the artist and uh, musician, not because of the content, which were excellent, but because of how she spoke. She was able to pick you up then soothe you, then wake you up all of a sudden with a jolt. It's the Mm. same thing with an exhibition. And it's the same thing with a mood board. You need to put yourself in your audience shoes Mm -hmm. and know when the attention is going to wane and bring it back up. So Mm -hmm. it really, um, it's narrative. It really is. So I want to stay with this thread about environmentalism. Um, Growing up, you know, and I feel like I became aware of issues. We may not have called it sustainability in the 90s, but already there was some early awareness of at least not polluting as much. Um, but it was always seen as somewhat antithetical to aesthetics. In other words, if a restaurant had health food uh, or natural sort of food, then the food would never have been served as it would in a Michelin type of restaurant on fine china. It would have been very crunchy. If, if a fashion was made with you know, natural fibers, then they would be in some drab beige, right? Because you wouldn't be using the dyes and you wouldn't have the cuts and you wouldn't have the stretch and the silhouettes and so forth. So it was always a trade-off. And I'm wondering if if we're moving into an era either because technology is making sustainability more attractive or because our eyes are adjusting to what really is beautiful in a pure form. What's your view on that? Any any predictions going forward about how nature and design will work together? 
But that's exactly what broken nature is about. Uh, it's about this idea of restorative design. You don't have to self-atone. You don't have to atone and punish yourself in order to be responsible. I think it's a synthesis. It's a combination of everything that you said. Technology certainly has caught up, but it's also culture that has changed. Mm. There's no need anymore to be humble and sad in order to think of the future with a more responsible attitude. And I have to say the younger generation certainly has done a lot for that. Um, I One of the most beautiful aspects or compliments that I was getting for Broken Nature when it was in Milan, it was 2019, the kids that were doing, that were striking on Fridays, that were doing Fridays for the future and mm -hmm. following Greta Thunbergs, they would gather at the exhibition and then start marching from there. So to me, that was the most beautiful thing. And the exhibition was filled with, uh, talk about, I say with beautiful, elegant, sensuous, humorous, um, you know, empathetic objects, beautiful mm. objects. So there was no sadness. Well, of course, there was this idea that we will become extinct and we have destroyed the world, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> we can do something about it without, without abdicating completely all, all pleasures and mm, uh, aesthetics. Mm. So I want to ask you about technology. Um, I struggle with, not so much with technology as an enabler. In fact, not at all with it as an enabler. It's made my life a whole lot easier and more convenient. But I feel like the effect, there's a numbing of the senses that happens. For every hour that we're spending looking at screens, it's an hour we're not spending, for example, in nature. We're not spending in our bodies. We're not spending with people. And, uh, and I've written a bit about how that affects our aesthetic uh, experiences. I was just reading very recently about this new sort of pixelated art where you can bid on it. You've probably read about it as well. And it will on they'll only auction off one of a kind, but it's really only digital, an, a, like a digital masterpiece. And I guess my question for you is, 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 is our taste and appreciation and the quality of art being produced, is it in any way diluted because of the amount of time that this next generation is consumed by devices and other technologies? I don't know, to tell you the truth. I don't think so. I think that, um, as usual, when there's a new technology, there's a moment of drunkenness. People overuse it and just spend too much time with it. And then you sober up and all of a sudden there are different critical um, ideas that set in. So people start having an idea of what's good and what's bad. So I think that it's just a moment like that. I mm. think that video game platforms, their own sensuality, okay, you might not be in nature, but you are in a universe and then you go in nature afterwards. So I think that mm. kids might spend too much time in video games at the beginning, but then they find a balance. I, I always trust human beings' own maturing and critical tools. Mm, I hope you're right. And I think <laughs> you are as well. You better be right, actually. Um, the pandemic. So clearly it's changed people. This last year has changed people's habits and, and, and routines dramatically. Um, and I know for a period of time, your own museum was closed. It's been open, although having restrictions that it didn't know in the past. Talk to me about the what your projections for the museum world, let's say come 2022. Do we go back to exactly where we were? Is the quality and the nature of art being produced during this very specific 
time period in any way altered? We change all the time as human beings, as museums, as citizens. So there's no going back, even though it might look that way sometimes from afar. So we will be forever changed by this pandemic, of course. And um, it's hard to know where we'll be in 2022. Um, the, I don't remember which agency in New York City might be. The tourism board has uh, foreseen that tourism will come back gradually, but certainly not yet in 2022. Mm. Um, well, you know what? We have focused so much on New Yorkers during these past months that that will stay with us for quite a while. And New Yorkers are our peeps, right? Mm -hmm. So it's nice to it's nice to have been able to focus on them. MoMA has been uh, has reopened at the end of August, and before that, we worked and we still do. We had a crisis management team. We established the protocols for reopening safely, both for staff and for visitors. So we're evolving, right? It's a mm -hmm. tough time for not only museums, but so many businesses that are based on tourism or on New Yorkers going out and enjoying life. So we are all aching together and we will all roll up our sleeves and reborn, mm -hmm. be reborn mm -hmm. together. But it's hard to know where 2022 will see us, certainly not at the levels that we were before in terms mm -hmm. of income and in terms of visitation. And as a curator who's always looking for the next big idea and maybe next movement, is what you've observed in the last year shaping ideas that you might want to see in, a, in an exhibit form down the road? Yeah, I want to see them in the world more than in an exhibition. It's been an amazingly important year for design. Mm -hmm. I have a great friend, um, Alice Rostorn. She's a design critic. We're best friends and we have worked in parallel lives forever. And we started something together last year in April, which is it's an Instagram live series called Design Emergency, mm -hmm. where we started interviewing the people that were the protagonist, the design protagonists of the crisis from the illustrator at the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that did the drawing, the illustration of the coronavirus that is used everywhere with the mm. mean spiky red S proteins to anesthesiologists that invented the split ventilators to people that did the campaign of awareness of coronavirus in New Zealand. So we, we just, we still do mm. it every week. We go far and wide looking for designers. At first, the designers that responded during the pandemic, but now we're thinking of the reconstruction. So we're thinking mm. of how we will live. We're thinking of how we will go to collective events together, if any. Mm. We're, we're thinking of what comfort will be like. So Design has really been energized by the emergency, by the crisis, and has mm. shown has shown its best colors. Mm. And uh, I hope that this will stay. This energy will stay, even though so many design companies have really gone under. I mean, from a business standpoint, it's been difficult. But from a creativity and agency and initiative standpoint, it's been amazing. Mm. So uh, just before we break, for people who want to follow your Instagram live, it's uh, design.emergency. Is that the hash? That's is correct. That the, uh, the, the name? Oh, that great. is it. Well, you mm -hmm. got you get at least one uh, in me who is going to follow <laughs> because I'm fascinated it's by the good. work you're doing. You'll like it. I'm sure I will. So um, we're going to be back in a moment. Stay with us for our final segment with Paola Antonelli. We're talking about modern design. 
And uh, when we're back, I actually want to talk what, what's coming down the pike. She's got quite a few different projects underway. You're listening to Sirius XM Stars. Stay right with us. Now, more with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. I'm here this hour with Paola Antonelli. She is a senior curator at the MoMA and just a great thought leader on all things modern design. Uh, we've been talking about a number of exhibits that she's uh, been involved with over the last many years. Um, there's one that um, is not as upbeat as uh, the one she just described a moment ago, which is about the future and sort of the, 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 the great state of the earth, which I guess will be better in the future than it's been, but it's, it's about violence. Uh, and I, I want to ask her about that. I want to ask her how violence had a role in the world of MoMA and how she approached that topic from a design perspective. You know, violence is an aspect of society that has always been with us and will never go away. So, of course, it, it, in the collection of MoMA and in the exhibitions, there's representations or accusations of violence in all the different departments. But a few years ago, I remember I was really I was really stunned when there was the announcement of the 3D printed gun. I don't know if you all remember mm -hmm. it, but it was um, this, um, uh, this man from Texas that had released online these files that enabled anyone to print with a 3D printer a lethal gun at oh. home. And I remember how stunned I was by that. And all of a sudden, you I always think of design as a positive force. And here is someone that takes something as positive as 3D printing design and open source and makes it so completely amoral. So to make a long story short, together with my co-curator, Jamer Hunt, we decided to investigate the manifestations of violence in contemporary society using design as the lens. And I'm thinking about it today also because of the killing of Sarah Everard in, in London. You know, mm -hmm. so many women have been protesting in the UK and everywhere about violence against women. And in that design and violence project, there were so many examples. Every week we would publish online, we had a, a website, we would publish a different object that impeccable design, but ambiguous, sometimes evil intentions, right? Mm -hmm. Then we would have we would have a, a, an expert write an essay about it. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, we would ask our readers a question and the conversation would start. For instance, at some point we had um, Temple Grandin. Temple mm -hmm. Grandin is this animal scientist. She redesigned the slaughterhouse so that cows do not know that they're going to be killed. There's like a curve so they don't see the killing spot. And um, we had the, 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 the president of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, um, write a piece about it. And at the end, the question was, can we redesign a violent act to be more humane? We had more than 150 comments. So you can use design also to talk about the darkest sides and the most complicated sides of life, which is important to learn because hmm. there's the beauty and the elegance of design can help us understand more also about our nature. And you know, the website is still is still there for anybody who wants to see it. You know, you just go MoMA and you Google MoMA and design and violence and you can still see it. Hmm. So, Did you include military equipment and, uh, and yeah, warfare? Yeah. yeah, 
we had the Kalashnikov, for instance. The Kalashnikov is a marvel of design. Can you imagine something that can be pretty much fixed all over the world because it's so easy to make the spare parts, but at the same time, that makes it one of the most evil objects ever, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. then we had a manual that would train uh, military using design thinking. I mean, so many different aspects. Mm. Um, or the green bullets, you know, bullets without lead that will not harm the environment, but they will still kill you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, my I mind. tell you. Mm -hmm. Mine too. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about one of the other hats you wear. I keep introducing you or reintroducing you as a senior curator. You also founded research and development department at MoMA. And I'd never heard prior to seeing that title of that role in a museum setting. What does it mean to do research and development at the MoMA? And that's exactly the point. So people ask, what does it mean? You know, that's what I wanted. So it all started in 2008 during the financial crisis. I did two years of economics before switching to architecture. And so I've always had an understanding of the financial sector, but also I've always wondered why the financial sector is considered so important and so beneficial to the destinies of a society. 2008, I said, okay, look at this. Finally, the financial sector revealed its true soul. And now we can finally show that culture, the cultural sector is the one that is really important to society. You know, usually culture is the one that's cut, all the budgets are gone the moment there's a crisis. So I, I just said, let's show the world that museums can be the R&D of society. We can help people test the kind of slow progress, like slow food, right? Mm -hmm. That is dependable and, and, and attuned to humanity. And, um, the way we conduct this R&D, which is a lot of R and very little D, is through salons, right? We, we have salons, um, we used to have them almost every other month, about important matters of life, you know, death, aging, protest, hair. And every time we invite, there's always at least one artist and then there's three other people then there's like video contributions and we send all of the people that want to come to the salon a reading list beforehand and it's very funny because the salons are free but because you show people that you've done a lot of work people take it so seriously mm. and the salons were big success almost all the time even those are online you look for MoMA R&D and you find them. And I'm very proud of them. The last one that we did before the pandemics was about dogs. You can still watch it online. I because, am going to um, watch it online. It, it was a way to address the fact um, that we think, you know, there's even developers that are doing condos for dogs that have people, right? So do we really, <laughs> do we, I know. So do we really know what it means to design for other species or with other species? So there's mm. always ways to address big issues in a museum with artists and taking different entryways. And I get how that would be incredibly eye-opening and stimulating for the public and for other participants within the museum. How does the, the, the discussion, though, find its way back into whatever other activities are happening within the museum, or does it? 
Well, um, I don't think that there's a direct route. I mean, the question is excellent because how do you measure success, right? What is success for something like this? I think it happens in a more indirect way. I'm never good at cause effect with the work that I do at the museum, but somehow there's an atmosphere that um, releases also the ability of other curators to do something similar. So you create a chain reaction with some of the curators, with some of the people in the public. And um, I never control it. I should do it more. But I think that uh, even though I cannot trace the DNA of the salons in mm. specific projects at MoMA, I feel that it's part of this opening of the discussion mm. to the rest of the world. So one of my final questions for you, um, you have a really, really interesting role in that part of your effectiveness is your ability to have one foot in the art world and one foot and maybe even more than one, maybe it's one and a half, outside. You have to be very um, kind of a student observing of, of the world around you. What, are, what do you do to keep a fresh lens? What do, you, what, what do you do for inspiration? What do you do when you're not on the job, if you're ever really not on that job? Well, that's the point. I'm never really on the job, never really out of the job in the sense that design truly surrounds us all the time. So I walk, uh, I, I walk on the street and I notice a new trash can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I noticed the trash can <laughs> or the other day there was um, on Instagram, there was this video of one of the workers that paint stop on, on the walkways. And I was so mesmerized. I mean, I just <laughs> observe all the time. That's the beauty. Design is really all encompassing 24 seven and it's always there. Um, so how do I keep myself? I mean, I don't know how to turn myself off. That's the yeah. problem sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, well, and you're in Italy. Uh, you're you're in your home country now. I'm sure you see the sort of magnificence of design there, albeit not so much modern design. Uh, how does it feel to be back? I have to ask in this very awful time. Well, I've been back. I'm here really for family reasons, so it's all very, very familiar. It always feels great. You know, it feels. Mm. I, I have many homes. It's the usually. Airplanes and airports are my happy places these days. Not really. It's not. Mm, mm. I mean, some people think I'm crazy normally, but now it's not as much fun. No, although there aren't mm -mm. as many people. But uh, but but that said, it's bringing up a lot of bad associations. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, by the time you make your way back, it'll start to feel a little more fun. Um, and I hope, speaking of coming back, that I can get you back on the air. You have so much to to offer. There's um, a ton of books that you've written. I mean, humble masterpieces designed in the elastic man mind. I'm sure that if, if people want to uh, buy it, these are available on Amazon. Is that right? Some are, some aren't. You know, it's like, but you can find almost all of them. You know, because I'm a design writer, it's not like thousands and dozens of thousands of copies, but you can find a lot of them. And a lot of great talks, including uh, those TED Talks that I've uh, referenced and keep watching. And for people who want to follow you, your your Twitter handle is? It's Curious Octopus. Which I love, <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite animals. And uh, Instagram is Paola Antonelli or design.emergency. And Paola's P-A-O-L-A Antonelli with two L's. So thank yeah. you again for uh, carving out time and calling in relatively late at night from uh, another part of the world. Keep safe and uh, look forward to seeing you when you're back. Thank you, Pauline. Ciao, ciao.
Ciao, ciao. And thank you as always to my producer, Ciara Kaiser, and my sound engineer, Mark Aflolo. You have been listening to Tastemakers. Look forward to reconnecting next week. <laughs>